I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Analyse this. I don't know, I don't like it. What do we got to have a meeting for? Let everybody else worry about their own business. This meeting is how we're going to survive. Meet Paul Vitti. I know. I feel great. Never felt better. A mob boss with a problem. <laughs> yeah, I got stress. <laughs> Based on everything I'd say, you had an anxiety attack. I need you to find me a doctor, like a psychiatrist. Dr. Sobel? Listen, mister, you can't come in here. This is a patient's private session. You know me? Yes. No, you don't. Okay. You see my picture in the paper? Yes. No, you didn't. He's got problems. Well, yeah. You are my shrink. You don't hear the word no very often, do you? I hear it all the time, only it's more like, no, please, no, no. You've got an accent to... Analyze this. In my world, I deal with animals, doctor. Want to be a ribeye? Get away from the car. What is my goal here? To make you a happy, well-adjusted gangster? I'm very angry. I'm trying to get some... some... Closure. Closure on that. You get a dictionary and find out what this closure is. You know what I do when I'm angry? I hit a pillow. Try that. Just hit the pillow. Feel better? Yeah, I do. Warner Brothers presents Robert De Niro. I couldn't do it last night. Do you mean sexually? No, I mean for the big game against Michigan State. Of course, sexually. Billy Crystal. I am here as his consigli glary. Consigliere. You want a fresh one? And Lisa Kudrow. Ah! My wedding is ruined because you've got problems. In the story of a gangster who couldn't kill anymore and the psychiatrist who must cure him. Get rid of the shrink. He knows too much already. It's okay. I wasn't really going to whack it. Oh, All right, maybe I was going to whack it, but I was, I, was, I was real conflicted about it. Analyze this. Yo. You got a gift. Yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. With us are Dr. Hunter Mulcair. Hello. And Amy Donaldson. Hello. Both of the Two Shrinks pod. You may remember them as our wonderful, insightful guests on such movies as Inside Out and Mary and Max. And we have since joined forces with them on our shared media network, Fireside Alliance, along with some other very lovely podcasts. And the four of us have been racking our brains for the best film to bring us back together to talk about and we hit upon analyze this the 1999 mobster comedy that was released to relatively little fanfare it did it did all right it definitely did a lot more all right than its sequel opposite mickey blue eyes i don't know if you remember the one with hugh grant and james khan yeah yeah uh, since it concerns, since Analyze This concerns an Italian gangster receiving some much needed therapy and experiencing serious challenges to his day to day crime. It was naturally overshadowed by the excellent and seminal HBO show The Sopranos, which actually launched just a few weeks before. So it's not like The Sopranos saw this and went, yeah, we can make a whole show out of that. In fact, I believe they even reference Analyze This in one episode. But since Sharon and I deal in movies, this. Analyze This is much more of a hundred-minute black comedy with some genuine emotional moments and a better fit for our show than The Sopranos. It was directed by a sorely missed Harold Ramis, who really did have a talent for direction, and we need to cover his other triumphs with Groundhog Day and the terminally unappreciated Bedazzled remake. After watching Analyze This several more times, I can attest that it is, in fact, 
my favourite mob movie over The Road to Perdition, over A History of Violence, over Miller's Crossing, over Donnie Brasco, over Bugsy Malone, even over the hallowed, celebrated and venerated Sacred Cows, Goodfellas and The Godfather 1 and 2. In principle, because it actually directly psychologically addresses the overcompensatory aggression, fragile masculinity and self-doubt that runs rife in the dealings of crime families without shaming them. If anything, it humanises them more than any other movie or TV show for me. It is speaking my language and I am here with three shrinks to talk about what goes on inside. So the film revolves around Robert De Niro as mob head honcho Paul Vitti, who finds he needs to retain the services of harangued therapist Ben Sobel, played by Billy Crystal, who was very much the godfather of this. Like, this was his his script that was doing the rounds for a long, long time until eventually he like, got to put it together. The commentary doesn't have Harold Ramis, more's the pity, but it does have Billy Crystal talking in quite a serious way about the film. Was the pun intended there, by the way? Yes. Okay. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Paul Vitti is suddenly out of nowhere feeling overwhelmed with his lifestyle and Ben in turn winds up juggling the fallout from Paul's emotional breakdown with his own impending marriage to news anchor Laura McNamara, played by Lisa Kudrow of Friends, along with his growing terror at winding up dead at the hands of disgruntled gangsters. And we begin with Paul reminiscing on a big meeting that his father attended many decades ago, one that went awry as the feds moved in. This sets the tone for the kind of perspective on the world that we're getting into, perfectly exemplified, I feel, by a mobster getting irate with a cow that's getting too close to his boss's car. And after reasoning with it, doesn't work, he switches to the only other gear that gets results with people, swearing at the cow and threatening it with his pistol, which actually does work. I think the shouting is... <laughs> you want to be a fucking ribeye? <laughs> Delicious. Shortly after this introduction to the mafia life he was raised in and his father's narrow escape from the feds, Paul is talking with his aged friend Dominic in a restaurant about an upcoming meeting between the five or six families. Paul is apprehensive and that only worsens when a sudden hit on the restaurant leaves Dominic dead, causing Paul to have a panic attack. So, and this is kind of serious, folks. My first multi-part question to our guests and to my co-host and wife, Sharon, is what is a panic attack? Is it accurately portrayed here? And what is the difference between a panic attack and an anxiety attack? Well, good question. <laughs> uh, who wants to take that one? I'm not even sure. I'll leave it to the professionals first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I suppose that means us, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, well, Amy and I had some uh, discussion about whether this was a panic attack mm. or whether this is what you would call uh, an acute stress uh, reaction. Yeah. So panic attack is usually when you get like high level of anxiety, it's cued by an internal external trigger, mm. triggers off perception of threat, which triggers off apprehension, which triggers off uh, body symptoms, which is like... Uh, uh, heart racing, sweating, nausea, feeling like you're going to die, you can't breathe, a mm. um, few other things. So that your fight and flight response is activated. You then interpret that as catastrophic mm. and then it loops back around. And so. And people often describe it like they're having a heart attack. Yeah. yeah. That's sort of clutching their chest like he does. Mm. Yeah. 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 So I, I had a patient who'd had heart attacks. And, uh, and then so anytime his heart went up, 
heart rate went up. So say if he walked up the flight of stairs, then he would his internal thought was, I'm having a heart attack, and then that whole anxiety chain would go off. Mm-hmm. Just because his heart rate was quickening. Panic attacks yeah. in, so, in response to uh, health anxiety is very common because yeah. the physical symptoms, when they start to kick in, if you don't, if you're not familiar with them, they often feel like you are actually having some kind of physical crisis. Mm-hmm. And the first job of a psychologist, uh, like so I work in a hospital, is um, educating people on, no, I think this is anxiety, but you obviously mm-hmm. need to do that carefully. Now, where, where Amy and I were discussing was, um, is this a panic attack or is this acute stress reaction? Amy, did you want to describe that? Yeah, so the, the deal with an acute stress reaction is that it's quicker than, say, post-traumatic stress disorder, which develops after a bit of a delay after a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. But the reason why we thought it might be this, you can have similar kind of symptoms. You can have this kind of hyperarousal where you feel panicky, heart race, sweaty, shaking, all of those things. But with an acute stress response, it's in reaction to a trigger that sort of reminds you of that event. So like the first one we see in the film is he's having a discussion and they mention the shooting and they mention the upcoming meeting and it's kind of this tense discussion and then he starts to have this reaction. Whereas panic attacks, often people can't identify the trigger. It's kind of there's not really anything in particular that set them off. So the confusion that, makes it worse. Oh, exactly. 100%. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and that's and that's why it's really panicky because you're like, what, like, what the hell's going on? I was just, exactly. I just walked up these stairs and and then I thought I was going to die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he seems to be having a response to being reminded of a past traumatic event. Yeah. But to answer your question, Alex, yes, very accurate in yeah. the way it's portrayed. I would suggest. Okay. I had something the other day you might be able to diagnose. Um, we're recording this just before Christmas, and it's going to be a very delayed release. Sorry, folks, we've got a packed schedule for January and February. But um, we got the Christmas market on in Lincoln right now, which is, you know, uh, lots of little old ladies come in from miles around on buses. They all get together. They all come and see the lights that are up. They come and see the uh, the little, every like loads of local businesses, you know, rent a stall and sell their wares. So you get knickknacks, you get wrapping paper, you get little Santa ornaments, you get uh, sweetie tents, you get fudge with your granddaughter's name written on it. It's it's for it's for gifts, but there's also like Bavarian foods, which is why we're eating a lot of bratwurst at the moment. Um, and you know you can get churros and donuts and things. It's, it's just basically a, a really nice kind of lo- uh, open air thing, which up until 2019 was an annual tradition, and it kind of snarls up all the roads. And and if you live locally, you're like, oh for fuck's sake. Every year, I can't even get to my own house or, or get like a, a, a supermarket delivery because they can't park anywhere, and it's 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 a it kind of gets in the way. But it's like you just it's only for a weekend and a few more days before as they set up and after as they clear up. But as we walked uh, our dog to the other park because we wanted to just steer clear of the uh, massive crowds of people who aren't wearing frigging masks. There are thousands of people in Lincoln right now, none of them wearing masks and infecting each other with diseases they brought in from other counties so that they can all propagate in this fucking Petri dish. We're like, well, well, that's that's fine. We're staying inside. We walked past a pair of armed police, and they weren't just like, you know, oh, they've got uh, uh, pistols at their hip. They were fucking holding armor-light rifles like they were on the Gaza Strip. (laughs) 
And I'll remind you again, this is the Christmas fair where you get your granddaughter's name written on fudge. And I was just thinking, what do they think is going to happen? What do they think having rifles is going to prevent the bloodshed at the mulled wine tent? What the fuck? And I got back in and started stomping around and shouting and like... I was like, you know what, this is, I don't know what this is, but I, I am pissed, pissed, pissed. And we we wrote a uh, an email to the council going, what do you think is going to happen? Like, if some guy goes mental with a knife and starts stabbing people, your officers aren't going to shoot him, are they? Like, from across the street while everyone's running towards him to try and take the knife off him or away from him so they don't get stabbed. Everyone's screaming, everyone's running around, it's night time. What are you cops going to do? What do you think is going to happen? Was that an anxiety attack or a panic attack or just being very rational? <laughs> <laughs> little column A, little column B. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that your, your anxiety was definitely exacerbated, A, by the whole large crowds of people not wearing masks because you do have very high health anxiety. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that had occurred... Well, I think, was, it, no, because that's the thing. I had high health anxiety yeah, exactly. and anxiety. then there was a pandemic and my brain went, well, I was right, I was exactly. right, I was right, I was right for years i was right That's i've been using mean. fucking hand sanitizer for years and now i can't get any That's what i mean your anxiety is all kind of stacked up and this sort of peaked it um but also your last experience with armed officers was in an airport where the threat of terrorism was very very acute and real mm. so it probably would have flashed you back to that very briefly as well Maybe But either way i think uh, the there is a prevailing um narrative sold to us, forced upon us, that guns make us feel safe. They don't. Not to me. And I would imagine quite a lot of people feel less safe with the presence of automatic weapons in otherwise entirely unwarranted areas of just sort of cute Santa shit. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I calmed down from it, but I've, I'm sitting on a, a lot of dental anxiety as well when I, uh, um, uh, because of the pandemic, when I, I had a, a dodgy tooth needed seeing to, I had to wait for like nine months, maybe even a year for, to uh, rotate back around to a dentist who had even seen me. And the damage had gotten so bad after I went through multiple dentists who were trying to save the thing that eventually it had to be ripped out of my head piece by piece. And I just came home and just like... Honestly, it wasn't that time that I started screaming. It was the other time mm. <laughs> that I was just like, this woman was not listening to me. Mm. And, you know, I was, it was basically just dental torture. Mm. And, mm. you know, now I've never liked the idea of, of going to the dentist. Now I am deathly afraid of it because mm. I can't trust them. And that meant that the other day you had me set up for a, a meeting with a dentist and it was like, yes, and you've got to get a subscription for a year's, uh, you know, you, you basically got to, you've got to it's sign up to this dentist for a private. year. And then, and you, and I was like, I don't want to sign up to a dentist. I don't want another subscription. I don't want a dentist. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's panic attacks, anxiety attacks, um, like low level uh, PTSD or something. Um, the essence is you were really sympathising with Paul's response. Yes, I really was. Well, look, but, but so so I mean we we jest, but it, it, when people, uh, particularly men, we have anger, like mm. or we express frustration. And that can be uh, generally at the at 
being driven by anxiety or being driven by low mood. So, so when I talk to my patients or when I talk to when I'm trained, you know, um, trainee psychologists, like I draw a little iceberg mm. and say, well, the, 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 bit, the bit of the iceberg that you see is the anger. And then what well, we all know about icebergs, the, the, the large bit is underneath the water and that contains some kind of other emotion, right? Mm. And so, you know, I think that that kind of fits, right? Like is that, you know, when you see this main character or all the mobsters in, in any mobster film, yeah. um, where, where they're expressing some, you know, anger as a primary or like as, as, as their first response, yeah. but really there's something else going on. And often it's stuff that we don't feel like is acceptable to feel or to express. So something like fear or mm. anxiety or something that perhaps has been taught to them that it's weak to feel frightened, for example. Mm. And you see it, like I see it a lot in teenage boys. There's fights and things that happen. And then when you actually kind of peel it back, you go, oh, you got completely freaked out. And then it was like a, a switch flicked and it takes them, it's quite a shock for them to realize that they're actually frightened. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't anger. It was, that was their way of dealing with the fear. And, and you, and when you talk to parents, like, yeah. and, and parents typically get angry with their children mm. at some point, uh, and, and often actually you wind it back and they're like, oh, you know, I, I felt out of control because I was, we were trying to get out of the house or we were trying to do this, we were trying to do that. And if you, dial it back through all the layers of whatever was going on, mm. you know, they, they were probably anxious or yeah. something like that. So, and the skill uh, in, with therapy uh, and, and particularly dealing with men, I think is that you, you have to learn how to like hold that frustration and that anger mm. and listen to it and then kind of help simmer and then kind of sift it, sift through. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm. know if that, that makes sense to you guys, but yeah, no, totally. Uh, it would appear um, specifically, I mean, the, the the mafia is like a really heightened version of uh, masculinity in terms of what mm. g gets peddled to us. Yeah. But if you look at the actual emotional responses you are allowed to have in the mafia from watching all these movies, joy, when you're all together with family, you're eating, you're joking, you're messing around, everything has to be super intense. And it's like, yeah, it was the best fucking time ever. Uh, disgust is definitely allowed. You're allowed to express, like, you know, I'm fucking disgusted with you, but it usually has to be done in a kind of an angry way, which it sort of and terminates in loathing. Mm. Um, Anger equates to strength. Mm. So, mm. like, if you're going to have a strong reaction to something, you get really fucking angry and everyone is afraid of you. Fear and sadness both equate to weakness. They are only for the women. They Maybe. are only for the wives. Yeah. They are only yeah. for the children. And, and the male children need to eliminate that shit and pretend that it's not there. Yeah, I mean, and focus yeah. on the anger, boys. I think part of the reason for that, and we did touch on this briefly, I seem to recall when we talked about the Inside Out show, is that sadness and fear in particular uh, in particular are kind of antithetical to anger because anger creates a movement and emotion is something that stimulates you to act so there's the, the word motion is in there for a reason so when you're angry it it prompts you to move towards the source of the thing that's causing the emotion to fight it or 
you know, kill it and eat it or something along those lines. That's where that primitive um, response is coming from. Fight it, fuck it or eat it in an unspecified order. Essentially, <laughs> yes. Um, whereas fear is stimulating you to get away from the source of the tension. Hmm. And sadness is kind of a, a, a sit down on the floor and think about what's going on. Okay. So... Um, in an environment where it strength is really key and the the thing that tends to come across in mob movies is that there's there's an organizational component to it that it's it's not just about the crime side you you tend to see a bit of that but it's not really the focus the focus is on the organizational element of it these are the families these are the heads of the families these are the men who are in charge they have to maintain their strength otherwise people won't do what they say and it's actually so close to the organizational tension that you get in things like the police the military the government any structure that is like capital P patriarchy it's it's this very sort of masculine idealized uh rigid fixed this is how things are organized because this is the only way that we can conceive they will continue to work the way we think they always have worked there's very little room for any flexibility there's very little room for approaching anything in a different way and the way that the the families in this express their emotions certainly at the the beginning part of the film there's very much that sense of compartmentalization Yes, you are allowed intense emotions, but it's only in very specific contexts. And ideally, you should only ever be experiencing one emotion at a time. And one of the reasons why, um, at least in my experience, uh, a panic attack or an anxiety attack can come out of feeling um, an extreme emotion is that you're feeling several emotions and they all start clashing into one another. And your brain fundamentally doesn't know how to react because like, especially if you are used to compartmentalizing things, it's like, how do I deal with the fact that I'm feeling anger and fear at the same time? And my body is literally trying to run in two directions at once. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. And and often you get people who present with panic attacks who are otherwise calm. Like, mm. so, you know, so, and and you can kind of piece it together that sometimes they've actually probably got, they're just really, really highly controlled um, and they live their life in a really highly controlled thing. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm totally fine. But then they have this, like, this huge spike of anxiety. Mm. Um, and it's, 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 there's a lot of detective work that goes on in, in clinical work, which is... And- entertaining if you're a clinician not so good if you're a client and and part of why it's so unsettling for people is that they're in complete control the rest of the time and then it's like i've got no control over this Mm. thing that happens and then that sort of feeds into itself of like oh my god i can't control it Mm. absolutely And, and then when you've got somebody who is in a position of authority like paul is that starts to seep out into well if i can't maintain control of myself in in what seems to be a very a straightforward situation that I should be able to handle. How am I going to handle all of these people that I'm responsible for? And that layers on the fear and it layers on the anxiety. Yeah, I mean, and he mentions that. He says, he says, oh, you know, you know, these guys are animals. They, they, mm. they, they, they will pick up, sniff out any weakness and pick it up, right? And he's, and and that's not him catastrophizing in an unrealistic way. That's him catastrophizing realistic way see me with the pandemic Mm. well this is this is why that organizational um kind of trauma almost seems to be there in in a lot of these structures because ultimately the level of things that they're dealing with yes there really is the potential that you might die (laughs) Mm. 
Uh, and uh, I was thinking about this as as we were uh, talking and about the gendered allocations of uh, emotions. Frequently, especially in the older movies, there will be a scene where one of the wives just fucking loses it. The, the wife of, of, of one of the mafia guys is like, you bastard, and starts throwing things because either he's cheated on her or there's a particularly high-pressure situation and she's blowing her top. And frequently he'll either shout at her or beat the shit out of her or it'll just be a horrible, oh, fuck you, fuck you, and they'll be sticking guns in each other's faces. And there's a, a similar analog in cop movies where uh, the wives are like, I should have never married a cop. I didn't expect you to be working. It would appear that while the wives are allowed to feel fear and sadness, they're not allowed to feel anger even when it's justified. So the the wife in this film, the, it's not Paul Vitti's wife. She's pretty much um, uh, peaches and cream the whole way through. But Billy Crystal's wife, uh, Lisa Kudrow, very justifiably, when her wedding gets ruined, is like, well, she says, my wedding is ruined because you've got problems. And I'm like, well, okay, totally justified. But at the same time, that's a red flag if you're marrying a shrink. Like, she'd be like, I can't believe I married a shrink. I didn't expect you to be seeing problematic clients. To a point, but do bear in mind that... that Psychology is a profession that contains boundaries for a reason. Mm. There's a lot of of, um, ethical lines that you draw as a professional therapist that are there. Honestly, a lot of them are there to protect you even more than they are to protect the client. Yeah. Because, I mean, Well, yeah, because you've got a personal... This whole thing, this whole film is about Ben's personal and professional boundaries being well and truly breached by a man who does not respect that code. Absolutely, absolutely. But the, the boundaries that he's... The boundaries that he's trying to hold and that Laura gets so frustrated at them repeatedly being violated, they are for the sake of everybody involved, ultimately. If you've got one client that seeps into every aspect of your your life, you, you aren't going to have anything left for your personal life. You're not going to have anything left for the rest of your clients. So, you know, you've, you've got to be able to, to draw those lines and maintain a, a mental health level for yourself where that's not being repeatedly interfered with and um, uh, Hunter and Amy you just did a a show on um, managing burnout as a a healthcare worker and I think that that's one of the things that you talked about was that the boundaries are there to help you manage that because otherwise you can't do your job you can't you can't support someone else if you can't support yourself no you crumble if you were to absorb everybody's everybody's shit that you take on Mm -hmm. all day and yeah, like it, it would, it wouldn't work yep. to be able to listen to people's stories and to actually be able to help them if you felt everything that they were describing, if that seeped into every part of your life. There's something, the containment helps them and you. Yeah, so then the containment helps someone coming to see you because they have to go out and live out in the world and learn how to do stuff and you're empower- you actually are empowering them by saying, I think you can cope until I mm. see you next week. Um, and there's a great gag in it that, uh, I don't know, Alex, if you picked it up, but, but for, for Amy and I lost it when the guy was like, oh, you need your schedule cleared? We'll clear your schedule. If you've ever had to clear your schedule in an emergency, it's an absolute nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and But also, like, you know, the, one of the things that we wanted to kind of remark on is that 
uh, Vidi is very needy mm. in, in a way that, say, Don Corleone or, or, or Paul Cicero from Goodfellas, Paulie, they're not needy, no. right? Like, and, and you know, they're so Don Corleone sort of intimidating, um, whereas uh, Paulie is kind of, he's more considered, whereas, whereas um, Vidi is very, very very neurotic and mm. kind of uh, well, well maybe not neurotic but like he becomes he becomes very needy he's like as soon as he jumps into therapy he's like oh, i want to see you all the time yeah right and it's just like and which which is it kind of gives it like a borderline personality flavor mm. to it we would mm. don't think that he would meet criteria for that disorder but um it, which is a very interesting portrayal of a of a crime crime boss mm. yeah well i think yeah. part of i'm going to allow the term interesting because <laughs> we're going <laughs> to go into it i know that's the that's the band i word yeah. <laughs> the, the the point that i was going to make there was with regards to that i think a part of that is because when we meet paul he's effectively already started his therapeutic journey the thing that's triggered him off effectively happens at the very beginning of the film it's this recollection of the meeting where everything went wrong that his father was at and that the the way that I interpreted that was it starts this record playing in his head about the differences between his father and himself and that the meeting they're asking him to attend dredges up recollection of that meeting where the feds descended. And then that leads into the conversation that has him talking about his father being shot. And then that puts him back in this almost, it's not a flashback state exactly, but it starts to put him back in that emotional sense of being a 12-year-old boy who's seeing something unfold in front of him that he can't handle. And he effectively carries that with him for the rest of the film. And I think that's where a big part of that neediness comes from. The the moment when Ben kind of agrees to treat him, there's a there's a moment of real emotional blackmail going on there because Paul is he's crying and they've they've set it up so that it's kind of in a humorous way, but you can see where it's it's genuinely coming from. And he's saying to Ben, why would a doctor leave somebody in this this state? He really is emphasising that clingy, you must help me, you must help me, I'm desperate, I'm desperate. But honestly, I, I wondered if the reason why Ben agrees at that point, it's, I mean, obviously it's implied that part of it is just, oh, for the love of God, okay, just shush. Don't want to end up in a concrete <laughs> overcoat. <laughs> exactly. Or if I don't, he will kill me. Um, but... For somebody to be able to exhibit that, because at the start of that conversation, Ben says to him, you're not a good candidate for therapy. But for him to then show that vulnerability in a public place, they're in the hotel bar at that point. In front of the mermaids. Yeah, in front of the mermaids. And the sharks. Who aren't used to crying. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So he is effectively exhibiting that he has already opened the door into that that being vulnerable. And if you're going to do therapy and therapy is going to work, you have to be willing to be vulnerable because otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. It's just, it's all going to be surface stuff and it's not going to dig anything out. And and you get the sense that Dr. Sobel is, is, is bored, is feeling unfulfilled, right? You know, mm. he's got this, got this process going on where, you know, there's this, this semi-competition with his father. He's feeling devalued by his father who's, like, launching a book. You know, his son's listening in on the sessions and kind of mm. going, you know, that's that's kind of crazy. Also, side note, ethical violation. Um, and, uh, <laughs> the, um, but, you know, but you 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 see, I, I, I watched that scene and I thought, you know, he, there's a therapist who saw a way in mm. and, like, and, and, and was like, it's like, 
I, I, I can do something here. Mm-hmm. And and you could get into a discussion about like, is he making a good decision for himself? But you know, it's the, the therapist that is. But then you see it again later on, right, where he's he's got the wire on. Mm-hmm. And then he finds out some information about the restaurant, um, which was where uh, his, the Paul Vitti's father had died, uh, got killed. The, he flicks into therapist mode. He's like, yeah. I, like, so I, I can help this person. Like, you know, and the, and it's like, he, he for all Doctor Sobel's faults, like he's he he has the the, the core uh, the heart of someone who is is a good therapist who wants to assist people, right? Yeah. And and knows and, and knows make, how to do it too. Yeah, wants so, to make the most of those moments where you see a little. A little glimpse of some way in or some sort of flicker of there could be some change here mm. and then let's build on that mm. he doesn't seem to be able to let those moments go even when the situation he's in is life-threatening for him <laughs> yes. or is completely inappropriate or <laughs> yeah. you know he prioritizes it's that not safe everything. there's a reason you do this in a therapy room i was sat there going <laughs> yeah, no you can't be in that state of mind when there's gunfire going on yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> But the yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that really impressed me about the way um, Billy Crystal puts this character across is that I, I agree with you completely that there is lots of, of ethical questions and boundary issues going on here, but that's part of the humour. But the way he portrays the essence of the, the character is that one of the primary things that he uh, he focuses on in every almost every exchange that you see between him and a patient, whether it's Paul or somebody else, is the focus on developing or or holding the relationship between him and the client, that rapport, that, that ability to create a dynamic between the two of them where that person feels safe to share the things that are really crucial and really important. With the exception of the first one. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> with the exception of the first one, which I think, though, that, that kind of speaks to Hunter's point about he's he's feeling bored and he's feeling he's like these, this, this isn't really, his current patients aren't really taking themselves anywhere and therefore they're not taking him anywhere um but apparently when he was doing his uh his research for the story and research for the role billy crystal spoke to um quite a few therapists and in particular people who work on crisis phones and and people who deal with uh situations where mental health emergencies are occurring so that's where a lot of that input came from which i thought was quite a a a good way to approach that situation because there is so much crisis going on in the film mm-hmm. but, but the, the, the therapy dialogues feel uh pretty real mm-hmm. like that, that whole like you're disagreeing with everything i say yeah you're right i do yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had that conversation <laughs> You mentioned before that uh, he's in competition with his father. I think that this was an aspect of the film. The film suffers from a weak finale because it's it's great fun, but it's not great emotional progress. So much of it seems to happen off camera. Ben's main issue, as you say, is is he walks into his father's book book party or just birthday party or god knows what and the guy's on the piano everyone's clustered around him and he's singing a song ad lib in extra lines and everyone's laughing their tits off and we like this is a really good way it's almost like a uh, it's a it's a longer form more expensive way of having a character eating an apple to uh, make him look like an asshole but someone that we kind of like anyway the way james t kirk does in uh Rathacon and uh, star trek 09 
Um, but he's in the shadow of this guy who knows it. And it's, it's like Ben's wondering when he's going to pop as a, uh, a, a therapist or if ever. Just the idea that he, he's kind of sort of walking on the spot and he clearly needs to talk to his father in a way that this comes out and his father recognises that about him. That should have been in some way reflected in the finale when he's up against, is his name Joey Bananas? I can't remember. Paulie Walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, Ben effectively has to stop living in the shadow of his father and actually, you know, sort of, be happy with the the version of his own life that he is leading, mm. and I suppose the closest he gets is is just telling the uh, couple who are you know the ladies like you know and he wants me to be his bucking bronco and no he wants to be my bucking bronco and he wants to be ridden hard and put away wet. Uh, as far as I can tell, that scene is her kind of asking uh, Ben permission to be okay with that herself. Like, part of her um, uh, internal superego is going, well, this is very unseemly sexual behavior. And part of her read is going, yeah, but maybe we should try it. Because the moment Ben says, just do it, she's like, well, okay then. And the husband just goes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. But but that, that appears to be Ben just cutting the shit, which is almost like... It's almost a devaluation of how important therapy is. Just, you know, shouting, here's your problem at, at, uh, at clients surely shouldn't be the answer. Well, no. And the, the, the I mean, one thing that Ben's early sessions made me just wrinkle my forehead and say repeatedly is he's given advice way too much. Mm. Um, <laughs> but the, um, the, the, one of the things that I said to you when Paul keeps saying to Ben, oh, you, you are so good. You'd like a genius. Well, like this I've, is in, I've given you half a thing and you know the thing that I'm talking about. This is in response to Paul starting with what I assume is a very common thing saying, I have a friend who's yes. suffering from panic attacks or, or no, who's suffering from, you know, he's just kind of like, and, and they describe their symptoms. And mm. then Ben's like, I've got a feeling that this friend is you. And Paul is amazed that Ben yeah. has seen through <laughs> his cunning ruse. But it's, the, I, I would I would say you probably get that less in actual therapy sessions because if they've already called the receptionist and made the appointment and come along to the therapy session, you've kind of admitted by that point that you've got something that needs to be resolved. True. Okay. Uh, it links to something which mm. I, I think that you know he's very he's very adolescent mm. in his in his way of being in his interpersonal style and his understanding of emotions and teenagers do that so teenagers have been sent by someone else mm. and they might talk about something that their parent knows about at the start and then usually if they're wanting to introduce me to the idea of something that's perhaps a little bit more shameful or something they haven't told someone about or whatever they'll always do the either I have this friend or what do you say to teenagers who say this or do you ever have a client who says something like this and yeah and like he feels adolescent he feels kind of immature in the way that he approaches the world and copes with the world like he's got all this responsibility and power but there's something there that 
yeah, mm. doesn't feel completely developed. Yeah, and, and I think that, I know, like, I mean, maybe it's a stretch, maybe it's not, but there is a parallel there, I think, with Ben Sobel of, like, you know, he's mm-hmm. trying to be his own man. He, he's gone into the same career as his father, um, which I always find an interesting thing. Yeah. Like, you know, did someone go into the same career or something completely the opposite um, as your parent figures. Um, and, you know, he's trying to kind of be himself and trying to do that stuff. And, but he's not getting the acceptance. Mm-hmm. And then he started to get a little bit bored. And what, what I thought was interesting is he, he doesn't chase, this is this great case that I could work on, mm-hmm. right? That would, you know, give me kudos with my father, right? There's none of that. There's, whereas like, you know, say Dr. Malfi in, in uh, The Sopranos, there is an element of that. Like mm. I could cure this guy, right? And that Godfather's wraps up, uh, Sopranos wraps up with he, with her kind of firing him out of therapy, right? Because mm. she realizes that she's wasted time. And so, you know, Sobel's journey is, is, is a little bit similar in like kind of trying to grow himself a little bit or mm. like kind of like, and then I think by, by the, the end of the film, like Alex, you were saying around, you know, the, the emotional growth is stunted, Right, and, and Amy and I remarked like that that final conversation. Maybe we're jumping a little bit too far ahead now, but like, it, it's an interesting. Uh, there isn't uh, much emotional growth as as you think mm. that there would have been for yeah. a film like this. Yeah, yeah. I was a big uh, fan of Frasier uh, growing up, uh, and something. Uh, while the show is funny on the surface, what it taught me over and over again was whenever someone acts in some way that seems strange, that is, as you described the iceberg, that's the 10% we can see. There's always something below the surface. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily to go violently in and start trying to uncover what that that is, but just to understand that there's something there. Mm-hmm. And an iceberg's a really good metaphor for that as well, because often those things will be frozen and it does take a lot of effort and time and patience to make somebody make somebody to to help somebody feel safe enough to start to melt that stuff and thaw it out because it's it's been frozen for a reason somebody's keeping it down there it's because it causes them anxiety or stress or for for whatever reason they can't deal with that stuff otherwise it wouldn't be down there they'd have they'd have dealt with it um and i think the in terms of what goes on maybe should have had a bit more effect on ben from the the film perspective, I I am inclined to agree with that. I think it's possible that they were trying to steer too clear of it becoming like counter-transference where a a client has a significant impact on a therapist to the point where it can cause problems in in the therapy dynamic because if you're there for a client and they're evoking all sorts of feelings and responses in you, that can make it difficult for that time and space to be entirely about them, which is what it's supposed to be. But there's a line where Paul says to Ben, you're a, sh- you're a shrink and you need a shrink or, or something along those lines. You're a therapist and you need therapy. Mm-hmm. Most therapists do have therapists. That's kind <laughs> of the point. It's, it, it's, it's a recognition. Doing that that job, to me, has always been a recognition of everybody needs some degree of help it might not necessarily be a therapist for everyone but no man is an island you know nobody can handle all of their problems entirely alone and and I do think that what this represents is that for Paul that journey is about 
admitting that he can't handle these problems alone and him getting to the point where the decisions that he makes going forward are about his friends and his family as well as about himself and his own uh, authoritative role. I think it, it does get across the point that it's trying to do. But I do think that, yes, there's more they could have done with, with Ben's own journey in that sense. Yeah. But just on that, Sharon, so what was interesting, you talk about countertransference there and, and what we noticed, like, because he says, oh, you know, you need to shrink yourself. And so that's the context of when he has gone and said to, so Ben Sobel's gone to Vidi and said, hey, I had a dream about you. Mm. The Now, <laughs> if you're a therapist or if you're seeing a therapist and the therapist tells you about a dream that they've had about you, change therapist yeah. right like this, <laughs> right um, big no no a big no no and so what happens right is that he's had his insight into what's going on yada yada but what happens is vidi rejects him goes goes he's like he's like you're making therapy about you mm. and so and he starts mocking him and starts kind of t- flips, flips twisting the dynamic twisting the dynamic and that actually happens that's a very real real pattern that mm. can happen with people with 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 clients particularly a subset of clients with with personality disorders where they will flip the dynamic on you and 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 you'll just be like what hang on what's going on here and usually it's following some sort of misachievement something's yeah. been missed or there's some perspective that you've had that they didn't like or there's something that feels sort of like you've been too perceptive there'll be something that didn't feel safe mm. or quite right in yeah. the therapy and then that will flip and they'll start either asking questions about you or they'll take you off yeah yep. or like making comments or sort of undermining things and i mean essentially he completely flips the control in that situation mm. and starts using sobel's own strategies against him really yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like starts yeah. reflecting back to him and starts linking things in a way that you know, if that happens to you as a therapist, can feel quite unsettling. Oh, it's, I mean, and I, exposing. I, yeah, I had a patient who took me, uh, who completely mimicked what, like, um, me take the way I would take my glasses off, polish them, <laughs> and then put them back on. Yeah. Like, and when that happens to you as a therapist, it's like it's a, it's panic inducing. Mm. <laughs> it can be really interesting, and that's why the boundaries are really good. You have to respect the boundaries. Yeah. There's lots of boundary crossings. We can get to a list of those later oh, on if so you want, many. Alex. We've got a list I'll of note theory. down list of boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the I I did note for that that conversation that the 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 back and forth that they're engaging in at that point is. I mean, the context is wrong because they're not in the therapy room at that point. But then a lot of what they do is not in the therapy room. So, um, but it's it's not a quote unquote proper <clears throat> therapeutic relationship. It's having some therapeutic benefit for both of them. But I think it's it it really interested me what you said about um, the the ages that they seem to be sort of stuck at. That Paul is having this sort of adolescent response to everything that's going on around him and it did occur to me that that might be because this part of him has got fixed at 12 years old when this this crisis occurred for him and yes Ben's almost infantilization around his father makes him feel adolescent as well but it feels like a slightly older adolescent so they, they end up in almost kind of this fraternal relationship where Ben is playing the older brother and Paul is playing the, the the younger brother emotionally, but in terms of strength and, and ability to cope with external situations, he's more mature in a way than Ben. 
who mm. almost retreats completely to childlike behaviour when there's something uh, threatening or, or violent going on. So they do have this kind of almost like brotherly back and forth that I think supersedes the therapeutic relationship eventually. Yeah. I'm getting I mean, um, major vibes about <clears throat> social constructs informing on our psychological development. And I can only really go on uh, mafia movies here rather than the real life. And uh, We Hate Movies constantly uh, st- uh, state that they are a pro-mafia uh, podcast because they don't want to end up... Because they live in New York. ...sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> and, yeah, we, we echo that. We definitely don't want to um, uh, yeah. uh, disrespect anybody in reality. However, the characters in mafia movies are drawn with very broad brushstrokes. And since Paul is kind of a parody of that... He comes under the the purview. And, uh, you know, what you said earlier, um, Amy, about him being like a a needy teenager and and, and quite emotionally immature. And Sharon, what you just said there about them both being slightly uh, older and younger teenagers. From what I've observed in Mafia movies, and again, it's just... You know what? What the greatest filmmakers of all time have uh, have told us uh, is that there appears to be very kind of set places to be if you're a man at each stage of your life. You're a kid. You're the son of a mafia guy who's supposed to teach you how to be a man. Then once you're a man, you you basically stay that way until you have a kid of your own. And their definition of a man is about a 14-year-old in terms of emotional development. And any further progress and actually internally sort of processing things and talking about things that tends to be quite upsetting to their surrounding men, who are all boys. It's, it's a, they, they deliberately seem to stunt various things which we kind of need to become relatively sensitive adults that's the guy at the beginning shouting at a cow and pointing his gun at it that's yeah. a boy going because he has one way of dealing with get things. this thing out of the way i point my gun that always works yeah it, and it, it that you you can just pick any say many scenes from any movie you know the in goodfellas or they're sitting around playing cards and arguing with each other mm. and stuff like that and it kind of got me thinking like uh, and Amy and I were talking about the way in which we work, and so I work with adults, and uh, I work with uh, in a medical setting, and sort of thinking to me about like when I work with men, they're often, I guess the the thing that Amy and I were talking about was that that I can some men find me completely baffling because they're not used to coming across a man that knows how to deal with emotions. Yeah. Right. And so I have to pay very close attention to the power dynamic. And so sometimes it's I'm Dr. Mulcair and this is what's going on. And other times I'm very subtle, I'm very kind of, you know, uh, you know, sort of I flip it. And you have to really be more attuned to that much more than, say, when I work with 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 adult women mm. um I don't, and sharon i'm not sure if, if if that's your experience or amy if that's that's your experience but there's something about knowing what to do with emotions that can be incredibly threatening and and then you get a mismatch in communication and then and then it things 
just go awry very mm. quickly. Well, yeah, because you don't fit into that father, like, you know, who's just like, yeah, shut up and eat your meatloaf uh, kind of, like, you know, uh, authority figure. If you're actually asking them questions which make them feel emotionally disarmed, they have no reference point for that. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Well, a, a lot of the reason why... Again, that doesn't mean that all people in the real world fit into these very specific cartoon mafia stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. But but a lot but of the reason why... But they are based in some people... level of, of compartmentalisation in reality. And, and ultimately, they are <coughs> a, a representation of human response to things. Mm. Um, one of the, the reasons, one of the main reasons why people often find themselves in a situation where therapy is going to be of benefit to them is that there is something it might be absolutely everything in their life that touches them it might be just one very specific issue but there is something that they are very fixed about and as human beings one of our most beneficial traits is our ability to be adaptable Hmm. and Hmm. If we get ourselves into a situation where we cannot be adaptable, then that's what makes us feel like something's really wrong here. And it's it's usually because we've either never learned uh, flexibility in that circumstance or more commonly because we've learned a set of coping mechanisms for that response that have either worked so well or been so rigidly enforced from, from external sources that we won't allow ourselves to find another way of dealing with that situation and in regard to the, the sort of the differences between how men sometimes present in therapy and how women sometimes do in the experience that I've had and this is not completely across the board but it's it's sort of a trend that that I have noticed is that often women will come to a session with here is a set of emotions that are unfamiliar to me and I'm not quite sure how I need to deal with it and that's what I want to explore whereas the the men that I've had as clients will often come with here's something and I've got no clue I, I this is what is this is this an emotion is this like that that meme of the guy looking at the butterfly going is, is this, this emotion <laughs> um, and and it, it seems like that a part of this is and I, I've said this many times when we've we've talked about the the whole that whole patriarchy hurts everybody we don't teach boys how to understand what they're feeling we just teach them put a lid on it and that's the best way to deal with it because I, I i don't know what the reason behind that is because we fear that if the lid comes off they'll get violent and we don't know how we're going to handle a full-grown man who's who's being aggressive because he has the muscle to make that really count mm. but when we're not teaching them how to uh, how to work with the things they're feeling or recognise the things they're feeling or, or express them in a way that, that does not cause massive damage. No. And that, what, what you said about the uh, having a, a hunter, what you said about a man coming to therapy and expressing anger to begin with, it's that can be a, a difficult thing as a therapist. You've got to be able to, to handle that, to recognise that there is a line beyond which if somebody goes beyond, that's not acceptable. But at the same time, if someone comes into a therapy room and the rule is you are not allowed to express anger at all, they're not going to get anywhere if that's one of the primary things that they're dealing with. And what you said earlier about uh, uh, there being actual genuine dangers... The mafia, as far as I can tell, live in a fantasy world. The closest equivalent would be something like Game of Thrones, uh, where the the law doesn't apply 
to the mafia. They circumvent the cops, they, they pay off the cops, or they kill the cops, or they, they effectively work around reality. So a lot of mafia movies, you've got a narrator telling you how amazing things were, and you walk into a place and everyone knows your name, and you pay all this, you know, you get paid all this money, you have fat stacks, and you did da 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 and we were doing all of this, and we were killing these people. It's cops and robbers. And playing it, cops and robbers. <clears throat> people have often said, like, you know, of Scorsese movies, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all shocking, but there's such an allure to it. Like, you kind of want to do that. I'm like, fuck no, I don't want to do that. Everyone's 14 years old emotionally. They have a hair trigger and they will kill you. It, like I said, it's a fantasy world where they don't have to live like regular human beings. But the reality often comes crashing down at the end of those movies where the feds turn up and something gets pulled, the rug gets pulled out from under them and sometimes a lot of them do end up going to jail. And I did think it was really interesting. Sorry. Interesting. Worthy of note. I did think it was really fascinating (laughs) that in this film, that happens twice. It is bookended with the feds coming down and effectively arresting everybody. that's the thing Paul is scared of. Like he's, when, before Dominic even gets killed, Paul's, they're talking at the very beginning about, you know, we've got this meeting coming up and Paul's like, ah, this could be an email. Um, <laughs> but like he's getting anxiety there. Mm. He's already feeling like bad things are going to happen. His friend mm. gets killed right next to him mm. at that stage. Which reinforces so, the bad things are going to happen. So we're leading up to this, like this doom laden kind of, you know, bad things are going to happen. And when we talk to Charles Palmonteri, who is a fucking maniac, and he's this bastard the whole way through, and he has that kind of, I want him dead! You know, like, 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 he has no compunction about just killing people, and frankly, Paul's afraid of that. He, He feels like, well... There's a reason why Ben dreams of him as Fredo. Fredo is needy. Fredo is afraid. Fredo breaks. Fredo ultimately betrays. It's... Paul is desperate to not do this thing. And the the fight, like his arc at the end of the film is he calmly walks in there after everything that's happened and just kind of makes his statements and then leaves having prepared for the the shit show that's going to happen and just gotten a bunch of guys ready to have his back and just being able to not so much man up as accept that fear in himself mm. and be able to 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 like what he's doing here is walking away mm. but he what he's learned from working with Ben is how to adapt and roll and he's put in place insurances that are probably not that uncommon to the the community that he's grown up in and the lifestyle that he's used to he uses a manner of speech that is is common to that environment so he's using the tools that he's learned but he's applying them in such a way that he gets to direct the scenario the way he wants it to go rather than just being reactive yeah so so the, so the, the film starts with that conversation which is you've got to change with the times that's what he's that's what his old friend is saying to him mm. and he's resistant which is and that's what Sharon was saying you know you have these old coping mechanisms mm. that you stick to you hold on to right and and then by the end of the film he's he's learnt he's he's learnt that he can adapt which is what Sharon was sort of saying you know the, and, and I think that often it's about you know the fear of him getting killed 
uh, you know, was always present. It was just that it became overwhelming because he he thought he couldn't deal mm. with it, and really, really, he he's decided, oh no, I I can deal with it. I can I can f- confront this fear. I mean, that that's and, that's how I would put it into my terms. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, in a way, even though it's absolutely ridiculous, the scene where um, Sobel asks him to call the other gangster <laughs> to talk about his emotions, there's a there's an interesting thing about that in that like you know often in in therapy when you start working up alternative ways of doing things there are some clients who will go well I'm going to go to the far end of that I'm going to do exactly what would be like the textbook way of doing that I'm going to entirely adapt like take on this new strategy which actually doesn't fit with them particularly well and in the situation it's not the right thing to try and call and and say that he's feeling frustrated and try and talk through his emotions because that doesn't fit with the way that world works but as the movie goes on he can build in like you were saying, his own stuff with the psychological strategies and the things that are going to work and make it more flexibly work for that situation rather than trying to apply how perhaps we would deal with a conflict of calling someone and saying, hey, I need to talk about how I'm feeling. Mm. They, uh, after the first uh, session... Um uh, and uh, when when Paul has, uh, it's not even really a session. Paul forces himself into uh, a room with uh, Ben and does that. You, you, you're good. And no, I'm not good. You're, yes, you are. You are. Being able to say that he's feeling this way allows him, uh, you know, to feel like a great load has been uh, uh, taken off. And I, it, it felt very authentic to me as an outsider to uh, uh, d- d- directly delivering therapy um, that clients might feel like after the first session, oh, okay, we've solved it then. So, like, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and having to convince them as a, a, a therapist, whoa, 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 hold your horses. You're feeling <laughs> some elation at this point, but there's going to be loads to deal with in an ongoing sense. This is not like a take a pill and you'll be fine in the morning. Yeah, I think, you know, often what happens, you know, what, what happens in that scene is that he delivers the briefest bit of a formulation of a kind of picture about what he thinks might be going on in Beatty's head. And for people who have never felt understood or heard or anything like that before, Mm. that can be massive. You Mm. just noticing how they're feeling and reflecting that back to them can feel like you're an absolute mind reader that Mm. there's, how have you possibly Mm. done this magic? Yeah. I've I've had that done to me. I've known the process that the person was doing it to me. And I still felt validated. Yeah. And, and and so like yeah, it's it's incredibly powerful. And it's it's like it's a core therapeutic skill. Yeah. And also like side note, just um, it completely divert thing, but like <laughs> they switch seats so that yes. v- Vidi sits down in the therapist chair, and Sobel sits down in the client's chair. And if that ever happens to you as a therapist, oh. it's it's very disorienting. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, yeah. But the I, I really liked that bit actually because when Ben sits down, like you've you've got that moment where he realizes that Paul's going to sit down in his seat, and then rather than confront him about that, he kind of accepts it and goes and sits down in the client's seat. But there's this yeah. moment where he sits, and part of it is obviously going to be the unfamiliarity because the the seats are, are very different. His his usual seat is lower to the ground. It's more of a kind of that that leather embracing. I can sink back and, and relax. Whereas the client's seat, is a, it looks a little harder. It's a little higher up. It encourages him to sit up straight and lean forward. But there's this brilliant little moment where he sits, looks, 
considers and then sort of readjusts himself and settles into, okay, this is the seat that I'm coming from now. And that shows precisely that adaptability and being able to switch and roll with it that I was describing. Speaking of getting a load off, uh, we've mentioned this occasionally on the podcast uh, a few times before, but we have something, uh, and this dates all the way back to the Digital Gonzo forums, but we have something on our Discord called the Rant Thread. And I'm sure you must have seen it, Hunter. Um, It is just a place where you go to unload about what's happening to you right now. And the only rule is that other people are not allowed to to say, well, in perspective, other people have got problems or try to fix your problem. Have you tried talking to this person? And it effectively, it's a place with no judgment. It's a place with no, where anything's allowed. You're like, oh, just I just smashed my thumb with a hammer versus my dad just died. The, the rule is, and everyone keeps saying, I'm sorry to complain about this when in context other people have got so many worse things. And it's like, it doesn't, the scale of it doesn't matter. This place, the rant thread, we would think would just become this repository for bile and hatred and, and misery is actually a place of a very therapeutic being able to just sort of just lighten that load on you. I, I don't think it's it's a miracle worker. It's certainly not the only thing people are going to need, but it has over the years proved to be an absolute staple of our community that we feel better for being able, because there's so many places, like if you complain about something on Twitter, some fucker's going to come along and go, well, actually, if you do it on a, you know, a YouTube thread or on Xbox Live or anywhere else, my ideas on social media are a little bit dated. I've been <laughs> avoiding it for fucking decades. We've also got a, a gush thread where you can say things that are nice that have just happened to you without feeling guilty, like, you know, I'm just boasting about this incredible thing while everyone else is suffering. Because again, we feel... Almost like our happiness is unwarranted sometimes. And I I feel like this is a community-led version of prototherapy. Like just just the, at least the being able to get stuff off your chest. Permission to have feelings. Mm. It's it's, it's about permission to have feelings. And, and, uh, you know, I work in a medical setting where people have bad things happen to them, you know foot amputated because of diabetes, uh, a cancer diagnosis. Um, they can't go home for the weekend or, um, or you know, at the moment because of COVID, they can't have visitors in the hospital, mm. you know, and everyone's got face shields and masks on and it's all, you know, and, you know, my role as a therapist frequently is like, yeah, you know, that, that you're having this emotion, that kind of sucks and, uh, yeah, that you're allowed to have it. And, mm. and that is actually incredibly validating and I have these – I, I work with you know train train students and stuff like that. They're like, oh, but I want to do an intervention. I'm like, nah, don't do an intervention. That's not what's needed. What you need to do is you need to reflect back and hold the space and and give the person some time, and then you can and then there'll be whatever strategy you want to do. <laughs> also, um, side note, we Amy and I did a version of of, of your rant thread at the gripe <laughs> list in our. 2020 review and Amy and I have been taking much pleasure in developing our gripe list for 20 the review 2021 show coming uh, 2021 show coming up so uh, uh, there was a rant about the cost of printer ink that was I just really needed to get off my chest last year it had been building for quite a while (laughs) entirely valid again I cannot overemphasize how important it is to be able to just say things and not worry, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, third, that first world problem. First world problem is 
it suggests that because we are of that we have any ability to get by and we not not that we're there at the absolute bottom of the ladder that nothing that affects us mm-hmm. should be worthy of saying and that we are a burden on society yeah. to feel bad and ultimately that that takes the, the number of people that I've spoken to over the, the course of my professional life and and one of the things they keep coming back to is I shouldn't feel this way I shouldn't feel this way and I all I can say to them is, yeah, but you do. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to to resolve that until you acknowledge that you do and find some way to, to kind of make a peace with that before you all your energy goes to, to containing a feeling or an emotion that you feel like you shouldn't be having. Like I call that worry about worry, right? Mm. So this idea of like you can have type one worries and type two worries. Type one worry is I'm anxious about, you know, doing a presentation at work or I'm anxious about, you know, uh, getting COVID when I go outside, right? Um, and then a type two worry or a type, you know, it's metacognition, which is, is like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wor- I, sh- I shouldn't be feeling anxious about this stuff. Like I, I'm worried. You know, I'm worrying. Too I'm much. worried. I'm worrying too much. And nine times out of ten, if you tackle the type two, the metacognition worry, right, then that helps us deal with our normal anxieties and we cope much better, mm-hmm. right? But it's that internal negative dialogue that more more often than not has come from the parents that mm. we grew up with or the parental figure and and that taught us how you're meant to respond mm. right and and you tackle those as a therapist right and then things become unfrozen mm. like this is to use sharon's metaphor Hmm. Um, Amy, you mentioned earlier a list of boundaries. <laughs> Do you want to go into that uh, regarding? I'm assuming this is all the things that Paul does that uh, just mess with Ben's personal life in in, in a, a giant list of don'ts. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's some things that are there right from the start. Before. Don't whack a guy at their wedding. That's the number one. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's one. But even things like you know their first interaction his son is listening from the other room. Mm. And it's obvious that it's not the first time he's overheard a therapy session because he says you shouldn't, like, you have to stop doing that. And so, like, there's already some blurry boundaries that he has in his work from the start that you get little hints about. And so there are some things where you kind of like, well, yeah, if a mobster is threatening you, you're absolutely going to buckle under those things. And then there are other things where it's kind of like, hmm, that one seemed like a pretty easy easy crossing Mm. so we had we had that we had um the fact that Beatty can just show up wherever whenever and just demand a session and it just happens (laughs) regardless of where it is um there's a whole bunch of confidentiality breaches he does he does get better at putting some boundaries in around like the the was it the the pre-wedding Thing and uh, with with the captain, um, <laughs> who he seems to just be meeting for the first time anyway. But um, and that guy's a colossal asshole, by the way. Oh. Lisa Kudrow's dad. Anyone who makes you call him the captain is has got <laughs> yeah. some serious problems. There's a couple of confidentiality breaches. Like he tells his fiance his client's name. The son's listening. He holds 
the sessions in the presence of other people where they can overhear. <laughs> jelly. It's like Jelly can comment on the dream being weird. Like- <laughs> Roger Ebert mentioned that that actor uh, really holds the movie together because like, he's the glue that stops Ben from going, like running through the streets. I can't do this. I can't do this. He totally is. And just to, just a tangent very slightly, I did put a note in that I, I think Jelly is the reason why all of this happens because He's, he's the, the first point of contact. Is yeah. The, yeah, he's the first point of contact with Ben entirely by accident because of the car crash. But also, he states he's had therapy himself. I mean, he does it in a very roundabout kind of concealed way. Joe Vitarelli is the uh, yeah. actor. Yeah. So the implication is that he got sent to prison for a short period and they he was obliged to have some counselling while he was in there. Mm. So he's kind of this midpoint between this very fixed, rigid, authoritative, mafioso approach and, well, maybe we can open the window a little bit to the concept of having some professional assistance here. Broke my heart, Jelly. You broke my heart. Carry on. Sorry. And I do feel like if he hadn't had that experience and was able to say, well, this, it, it may not have changed things for me particularly radically, but it obviously helped him a little bit because it, because it occurs to him to suggest it to Paul. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, so I really like Jelly. I think he's a fab character. <laughs> Amy, yeah. continue. Sorry. It's quite stabilizing. We also, like, we also think, you know, we got a lot of enjoyment out of the gifts that he receives. And then, like, the fountain. And, I mean, we watched it together a couple of times and Tony Bennett at the end oh. just makes both of us roar with laughter. But then also there's, there's this, we weren't sure whether it was a joke or not, and I'm curious what you two think about it. When he's talking to the FBI and he makes that offhanded comment about being given a TV from a kleptomaniac, mm-hmm. and we, like the first time it just kind of went through, and then the second time we're kind of like, was that a joke or did he actually did already, he keep it? Did he keep a TV that was? It's definitely a dry joke <laughs> delivered by Billy Crystal, but he probably did also keep it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a blurry. How would you return a fountain? Like I was saying, <laughs> it's plumbed in. I was just like, going to say, it's running. It's clearly been installed. It, was it playing I mean, music or was that non-diegetic music? I don't think that was diegetic music, but, but the um, the water was definitely real. It's beautiful. But like, I, I love the fact that it's juxtaposed against this relatively modest house. Yeah, what if it's you so want huge. it somewhere else? You don't just... Break into someone's house and install a gift. But, I mean, like that's the whole, like, giant gold bracelet mafia yeah. thing. Exactly, the extravagance. I, I, did, I did get the feeling that Tony Bennett at some point probably had done that for somebody. <laughs> like, you know, that the mafia said, we need you to do this for, ton- uh, for tonight. For oh, this, absolutely. This, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, even, even things like that at the end he goes to visit him socially in <gasps> prison and mm. then... When they're trying to come up with ideas of, you know, future sessions, <gasps> his first option is I can come and see you on Saturdays like, out of our, like in his personal time. Like, like just... if, if you were working with a therapist and they said, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go see this patient of mine out of ours on a Saturday uh, in prison. It's like, like okay, w- what what's happening here? <laughs> Are you going as a friend or as a therapist? Yeah, it's just there, there were multiple things that then, I mean, you add in the layers of, Beatty kind of, you know, broaching things and physical boundaries and all of those kind of things. But there's a bunch that are kind of a little more nuanced. Do, like doing that. trauma therapy at gunpoint, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's not mm. traditional. Mm. Yeah. I think the uh, the prison thing is because 
Paul's been afraid for so long and then he just seems so accepting when he's in the joint. And it's it's kind of like a, a rite of passage if you're in a, in a crime family. You go in there, you slice the garlic up with a razor blade and then you put the razor blade in a toothbrush. Anyway, but the whole I'll see you on Saturdays, that was more of a concession to, oh, these guys are friends now as opposed to I never want to see you again. You are a bane of my existence. Yes. However, if over the course of a, a therapeutic relationship you end up getting to the stage where you feel like you are friends with somebody which shouldn't happen anyway yeah you can't be friends and your therapist you shouldn't be continuing therapy with them because the relationship has now shifted such that that if you're going to talk to them as a friend Mm. you're not talking to them as a therapist those are two different like I said the third act of this movie is very funny but they bungle quite a lot of the threads in terms of where they should wind up Mm. yeah I really with that final interaction between them it really it really felt like a lost moment and mm. it sort of i think reflected on where dr sobel is still at in his own kind of growth and change that that moment where you know vidi's really trying to thank him and he tries it twice he does the first kind of like you know more offhanded hey thanks doc kind of thing and then he tries to really go no seriously thank you and tries to thank him properly and it's kind of there would be a moment there for like you know two men having genuine emotional connection if Dr. Sobel could respond in a genuine way, but he doesn't. He's no, not able quite, to do it. It's actually it. quite sad, I reckon. It is. It's like because he goes to the oh it's a correctional emotional experience. Like yeah. He goes, to the, goes he for his defense mechanism of 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 humor. Um whereas you you know um uh, I guess the the only way the only thing that comes to mind is a, a, a obscure film called Tigerland, and right at the end of Tigerland, the one with Colin Farrell, Colin Farrell, and he, Joe Schumacher, Schumacher, and and he says, you know, someone's got to take your place, right? Mm-hmm. And there, there, there's this, there's this, been this all this big masculinity the whole way through, <clears throat> and then at the end, there is this beautiful brief moment mm. where and and it's and it settles everything when you're smiling when you're smiling when you're smiling when you're smiling and the smiles with you and when you're laughing oh you're laughing when the sun comes shining through when you're crying you bring on the rain stop your side won't you be happy again? happy again when you're smiling? When you're smiling. Keep, on smiling. Keep on smiling. And this will be a good time for us to take a quick break to say thank you to the lovely people who support us on Patreon every month. Thank you to all of you. And a shout out to those in the top tier. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pullmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, 
Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Wazenski, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. You're laughing, you bring on the joy. Bring on the joy. Be happy. Be happy. You gotta groove, my boy. You gotta groove, my boy. When you're smiling. When you're smiling. Keep on smiling. Keep on smiling. And no I also feel like um during the big dramatic scene where Paul is cast back to the moment when his father was murdered and uh, he talks about how he and his father were mad at each other and he didn't say anything when he saw suspicious activity which then led to his father's death so he feels like it was his fault. <clears throat> I think they didn't go hard enough on that. I think they uh, would. They didn't want the audience to be too uncomfortable. They didn't want to go into a full-on drama and mm. catch people off guard. A powerful, brave thing to do would be to flashback. Like flashback to like maybe have a little flash of it earlier in the film and have Paul think about it so that then when we get back to it, we know where we are. Give us a roadmap. Um, but yeah, a little kid who really genuine, like to put it in perspective, he had no power to prevent this thing happening, but he thinks he did. And so when De Niro cries here, I didn't see it in the cinema, but I'd imagine that the audience laughed nervously, not knowing whether this was like the earlier times when he's crying, kind of funny, or actually just heartbreaking. Because that is a heartbreaking scene. For, for our money, that, that scene is a better trauma processing scene mm. than the scene in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. The, wow. the, the, better than Good Will yeah. Hunting. Oh yeah. Better than that scene. So so uh and and it, it's it's ruins the dramatic poem because it comes it comes into the the, 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 the the gunfight. Yeah. But they step on I it. I mean There wasn't they, a gunfight in Goodwill Hunting, tell you that. <laughs> no. But, it was fuck but, those guys. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, the the way that Sobel builds up you know, brings him back to what was happening at the scene, what was happening at the time. It was, what, what you did waiting? you order? It's just getting yeah. him in touch with sense memory, saying, you know, like, effectively saying, taste the ravioli you tasted at that moment. And then there was a bitter sense. He doesn't say this. There was a bitter taste in the back of your mouth. It was adrenaline because a gun was coming into play. Mm. Uh, the It's almost brutal the way he brings Paul back to that. And... I was saying to Sharon last night, there aren't many actors who could play Paul that well. Like, Pacino's fantastic, but I think Michael Rooker, specifically because of the level of believable vulnerability about them in someone that we've seen be so tough, so hard, so closed off, and so emotionally distraught so many times before. Mm. I think it just, it is something just magic, like, just great about that scene but then it i don't know and then it goes I, to the gunfight <laughs> yeah i i mean i think it does show a little bit that you know sometimes being a therapist you have to say something that that can feel a little bit nasty nasty mm. like a bit cruel like you know he does plunge him right into that and it's what's needed in the moment it's what 
that's what he needs to be able to process things. But sometimes you have to bring something up or say something and then you see the kind of response you see in that. Like you immediately see his breath start to get quicker mm. and him start to look a little bit panicky even while he's saying, oh, I don't remember, I don't remember. There's like immediately his arousal goes up mm. and yeah, you sometimes have to be a bit of a bastard as a therapist. We, we talked about that. Um, Sharon came on to our show and we talked about, you know, um, therapists in movies. And we mm. talked about, you know, sometimes therapists, you are an, an unpleasant person. Yeah. You know, um, and he and in that he makes him relive the difficult memory and then counters the shame because he was, was it, he was, he was angry with his dad because his mm. dad had hit him because his dad had found out that he was running with a gang. Yeah. Right? And so, and then he's, and then it's all that shame. So the problem with a trauma or traumatic event, you you go through something life threatening. You see someone injured. Uh, you 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 get hurt. Something like that. You survive it. But it's it's not just the event itself, but it's the uh, I guess like psychological cognitive part that the story you tell yourself about the event. Mm. I caused that. I blamed it. I should have known. I shouldn't have walked down that alleyway. I should have done something differently. All the shoulds mm. that you probably don't even realize that you say to yourself. Mm. And uh, it's real therapeutic growth comes in when you're able to tackle those things. And as a general rule, the younger you are when the trauma happens, the more you think it's your fault because children are egocentric and they think everything is caused by their behaviour. Mm. And so he's on that cusp of adolescence and childhood and the fact that he noticed something is enough to then go, well, this entire thing was my fault yeah. rather than, you know, he froze. He didn't know what to do. There it's was not nothing your fault. That he to fix it yeah and self-blame I think even in even in adults is such a very common response to a chaotic situation because there's there's a part of our psyche that is more willing to accept I did have control here and therefore it was my fault that I didn't control it than to Mm. accept there was no control to be had here it's safer for the future if you can go it I had some part in it. You get it with so. cancer patients. Like, so I worked with cancer patients in oncology unit for, you know, better part of a decade and frequently get people say, oh, I caused my cancer. Uh, you know, I was stressed last year. I caused it. Mm. Now, there's no research evidence. A lot of people will tell you otherwise, but it's not true. There's no research evidence that shows that stress causes cancer. But people, like, why would people blame themselves? Because it makes them feel in control, mm. makes the world feel predictable. Yeah. Right. And so it's a... Uh, yeah, it's that feels better. Yeah, it's like it's it's helpful slash harmful. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing to kind of come up against. For context, by the way, uh, Ben isn't just cruel out of nowhere. Paul has a gun to the back of his head and is about to cap him because the feds have interfered and made it seem like Paul was going to betray him, and then Ben sort of betrayed Paul, but then decided against it. And it's 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 all a whole uh, miscommunication. But he then. Turns around and fells Paul with this, but it's not the way Crystal plays it is not a desperate defense mechanism. It's not like, you know, don't kill me, I've got things to tell you. It's he's actually accepting. So if you want to look at it as completing an arc, Ben has got to the point where the terror of being killed by the mafia has finally reached its peak because he's about to be killed by the mafia and he's like, well, i got nothing more to be afraid of, so I'm just going to level with you, Paul, on this one. Let's just get to the end of our sessions and what I've observed about this. So 
Again, I'm not sure if this is relatively the right way for a therapist to complete an arc in a film like this, but it feels like Ben just cuts the shit. He's, but he's also finishing the therapy session that they started in the restaurant. Yeah. He's, you know, it's still within that same thing of him realising that, hang on, he's been taken out to dinner at the location where an early trauma happened. Yeah. And he's seeing it through and there's, it fits with that stuff we were talking about earlier where he has such a strong desire to provide therapy mm. and to do that. Like there's, yes, it saves his life, but there's also like a, I need to see this through. Mm. It's, yeah, it's not desperate, is it? It's, it's, it's I'm, I'm a th- you know, I like, I'm, I'm doing my job here. Like, mm. you know. It's he, not about me. It's not about me. I'm, I'm doing this. Like I can help you. Mm. Um, yeah, which is very interesting. Uh, Curious, yeah. <laughs> and he's but he's he. I will walking, wean you off that word. <laughs> he's walking something through to a conclusion, which is really quite a key thing about therapy sessions. It's it's risky to open something up in a client if you aren't going to properly close it down before they walk out the door, because ultimately the the vulnerability and the pain and everything that they might experience within those four walls, afterwards, they have to be able to go back out into the world. And if you go through the steps with somebody to kind of open them up to that and then don't help them to get it back under control, you are potentially doing more harm than good. I think one example I've seen of this in a film is played for ridiculously high levels of comedy effect, but Office Space, where he sees a a hypnotherapist who then... Dies. Dies mid-session and is unable to close down the hypnotherapy. So he walks out with all of his defences wide open. We just saw uh, Shallow Hal as well, where Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, forces Jack Black to see the inner beauty in people. And that film could have ended up impossible to watch in the 2020s. I I would say that parts of that film feel terrible in terms of they're making fun of fat people all the time. But there is a weird sense of actually part of this hasn't aged and in fact is really pure now still today. I think it it's has- on Disney Plus. I recommend people at least check it out. But it's it's a minefield, but the the heart is yeah, it. Yeah, I think it has a really good heart. I think the way it goes about expressing that has massive question marks all over it. But I do think it has a good heart. Uh, but yeah, Ron Livingston plays Peter Gibbons. Peter, in that's office. the one. Thank I, you. I will burn down this building. Mm. My statement. <laughs> But yeah, he he has that example of somebody who is opened up to vulnerability in the course of a therapy session and then doesn't have the opportunity to close it down. Like I said, we don't see any particularly dramatic, terrible things happening to him because of it, but in the real world, it can. And this is why I get a lot of pushback on it, but I confer a similar responsibility upon writers and creators You need all kinds of certification, all kinds of permits, all kinds of education to practice psychology and to see patients. You need no license to be an author. And if you aren't careful and if you act without any responsibility, you can fuck with people's heads. Which is kind of the problem with how that Kayad scene ends. Mm. Is that, you know, he's still distressed and um, his therapy is cut off yeah he's he's rejected immediately while he's he says, he's yeah, still upset he says yeah he says 
um, uh, we, we can't work together anymore. Yeah. After <laughs> handing him back the gun. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> but also oh, it puts everybody's life immediately in danger because in that moment when they're being attacked, Paul is 12 and in the midst of an extremely distressing experience, he is in no position to defend himself. Have you ever fired a gun in therapy, Sharon? I don't think I have. Uh, it's not one of my customary techniques, no. <laughs> the journey isn't really over for Paul. He's about to go to this meeting and finally sort of, uh, um, you know, step into this danger zone he's been trying to avoid. And an insurance ad comes on the TV. And this was a real insurance ad. And it really did get to Robert De Niro. He actually had a guy with a little TV walk along the beach with them, playing this ad so that he could cry from a place of, of honesty and truth. I mean, that that's method acting done properly without... Like, Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, when he was preparing for uh, Gangs of New York, bought a stiletto on a flight, and the flight attendant... Well, the, the, at the gate, they were like... Uh, you know, we, we can't let you on this uh, plane. But he was being Bill the Butcher. He was like, get your fucking hands off me and just screaming a load of obscenity. And it's like, that is being an asshole. Mm. Also, if you want to be truly method, you want to be Bill the Butcher right now, you swim to America, my son. Yeah. Well, he's part of the Know Nothing movement, so he'll fit right in. Anyway. I don't think he'd be on a plane. But yeah, I mean, it, it kind of disoriented uh, Billy Crystal that there was this ad playing all the time. But again... It's a thing that, uh, that's actually kind of a touchstone for Paul. It allows him to, when we next see him, he's pushed through a barrier. He's sort of, it's the, uh, the idea that he is kind of squaring away the differences between him and his father and recompartmentalizing his younger self with his older self now. Mm, yeah. He sees his, he sees his son, the moment is his, his son, he interacts with his son on the bed yeah. and says, oh, no, how long are you going to lie there? S- side note, Alex and, and Sharon, I'm not sure if you remember, in the Inside Out pod that we did, mm-hmm. I meant that I'd gone to a film and a banking ad had made me cry. <laughs> so huh. They do that. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just want to be perky and fun and memorable like that. They want to actually hit you in your emotions. So you're like, I'm going to bank with them from now on. Well, yeah, because they figured out at a certain point in the 80s that emotion was a better way to get people in than appealing to their mm. uh, intellectual and rational faculties. And I said to you, didn't I, between things like this and the Gillette adverts, I sneakily suspect that that cracked open a generation. The best a man can get. Yeah, indeed. Oh, just on a side note of talking about adverts, around about the time lockdown finished for us, I know it keeps coming back for you guys in Australia because you had a different situation, there was an ad for McDonald's on YouTube which just kept playing over and over again. And it was just people laughing and laughing and laughing into the camera. They were laughing with each other, laughing on their own, eating fries and laughing. And it was it got really disconcerting. It looked like an Ari Aster film. It was like... <laughs> And I was like, please stop them laughing. And it went, don't you fancy letting go? Come to McDonald's. Not a mask in there. Indeed. But also, it's not like we haven't had McDonald's throughout the lockdown. Deliveroo was a thing. Yeah. But what we mean is, come outside, take off your mask, and laugh your coughs all over everyone. (laughs) It was gross and weird. Oh, actually, not as weird and gross as, do you remember that advert for airline? I think it was like, um, it was a very, like Emirates or, or like, you know, if you want to fly to Dubai and live with the princes, um, it was showing this like, sp- 
space airport and the space airport was empty and it had just like three people sitting there in this calm sunrise and there were like robot butlers cleaning the floors mm. and it was like you know we keep the riffraff away from you oh that was yeah that very much felt like if you're rich enough yeah everything's fine yeah it was it, this was smack bang in the middle of the pandemic and it was like you can fly and not worry at all we'll put you in a cage and <laughs> <laughs> and there was this one giant statue that terrified me. What was it? He looked like Baba. And, and it was like this giant elephant god. And I'm like, do they put poor people in that statue and burn it? Like, how do they maintain their wealth? That must be the only way. Like you and I just, I created a whole mythology around this airport and this statue and how many blood <laughs> sacrifices are required just to keep the robot butlers running. The elephant was named Shugnasty, and Shugnasty hungers. Either way, some adverts are fucking creepy. <laughs> That's all. This should be in cutting class, but I'm leaving it in because we all need a bit of a break from this pressure and trauma. This has been a fan-bloody-tastic show, by the way, guys. Thank you so, so much. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah. We, we, we did have one question. Mm-hmm. Very, very, there's this very, very brief moment where Jelly sneaks into the hotel room and like taps Billy, uh, Dr. Sobel on the, on the shoulder and, and he says, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, hmm, what's happening there? My favorite line in, the, I think, the whole movie is when Billy Crystal is doing uh, Robert De Niro. He's like, oh, Doc, Doc, you gotta help me. Okay, Paul, I'll help you. Fuck you, nobody helps Paul Vidi. I have encountered people like that in real life. Yeah, one, one <laughs> tiny thing that stood out to me <clears throat> that's never hit me before, and it possibly is to do with the fact that, uh, that Hunter and I have had a couple of conversations about the possibility of looking into talking about... ASMR mm. and the therapeutic the potential therapeutic benefits thereof. Um, so, just to briefly explain what ASMR is for anybody who doesn't know, it's it's a particular intrigue of mine. But so ASMR stands for autonomic sensory meridian response, and it's when something happens that makes you get that sort of chill down the back of your neck. But for a lot of people, it's it's a good thing. It relaxes them. Um, I believe that the chemical process of it is it's your fight and flight response turning off and switching back into the the opposite nervous system, the one that says, okay, you're safe now, you can calm down, you can relax. And, and quite a lot of people use ASMR videos on YouTube to help them sleep. There are certain what are considered to be classic triggers for it. And one of them is being fitted for a classic suit, going to a tailor, being measured and having fabric stretched out along you to see if it suits you and and this kind of this this close attention that's being paid to you and the fact that you're having sort of light touch that's very unintrusive and it, it for some people it's extremely relaxing and it occurred to me there is a scene where I think is it Joey Ch- Bananas. Yeah, Jess <laughs> Palmateri is is at a uh, a tailor, and it they give a lot of attention to the factory behind him, the machines cutting the fabric for the suits, and then it cuts to him, and as he's having this very 
intense and stressful conversation, he's got a tailor sat at his feet measuring him and, and fitting him for this suit. And it occurred to me that it's entirely possible that that being very much a tradition within this sort of mafia environment that, that you have these fitted suits made, that might be them reaching for a relaxing experience in the only way they know how to do. Mm. It gives him a sort of that sense of attention and sense of control and that, mm. that, that tactile thing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, I feel like the, the fight and flight response has to be uh, high if you're in the mafia because you might need to... Like, when, when the uh, drive-by happens and uh, Paul's friend Dominic is, is killed suddenly, that's not out of the ordinary, in mm. at least according to cinema and according to, uh, to TV, which over-dramatizes everything, obviously. But the, the idea of always being worried that you might have to fight. Mm. And that relates to uh, a, a lot of um, what we've been talking about in recent years, a heightened sense of threat, mm. which is affecting all of us. I feel like there's there's no safe way to eliminate practical threat responses because they are valid yeah it's more about when they bleed into other areas or when they become the default absolutely and probably in you know in that whole acculturation process for boys in this kind of culture Mm. part of it is that there's kind of threat or there's like you know threat of their parents being angry with them or any of those things like their fight flight systems would be heightened already when they're kids before they even get into adulthood mm. it's sort of everything set up to go that direction yeah. yeah and this is one of the reasons why we keep coming back to this idea of of talking about those feelings and that that sense of pressure building up because if you can express it in whatever way is available to you, because the, the 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 ways that are usually pointed to as if you're having mental health issues, just reach out and talk to somebody about it. That isn't always possible for some people. But being able to externalise those feelings and those pressures, even if all you do is write it down so that it's no longer just in your head, now it's in front of your eyes and you can look at it from a different perspective, even that can help. Just getting it out of that internalised environment where all it can do is circle round and round and round, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. Anything that you can do to to enable that is potentially going to give you some relief. Mm. I think that should just about do it for Analyze This. Before we go, can our esteemed guests tell the listeners about your own show and some good episodes they can check out, especially those which might happen to have guests on who might have been on from this show? (laughs) Because our listeners might not be aware that they definitely have to listen to that episode. Absolutely, yes. So, uh, Two Shrinks Pod, you can find twoshrinkspod.com. Uh, and we, Amy and I get together from time to time and talk about psychological issues and talk about doing therapy. Um, it's, it's not usually a self-help 
podcast, although uh, the most recent episode that we've just recorded was about uh, uh, burnout and stress, emotional exhaustion in healthcare workers. But we've done a whole lot of episodes. So if you're into movies, as you probably would be, um, uh, we did an episode on, on The Breakfast Club where we talked about what would happen if The Breakfast Club went to therapy rather than rather than to detention. We had Sharon on for um, a great episode. It was our third installment of Shrinks on Film where we talked about movies and uh, scenes where there's therapists in it and talked about how accurate the, the therapy is and well, and our thoughts on it. Um, other episodes that we'd recommend, Amy? Well, movie-wise, there's, of course, Star Wars, which I think was what one that we were building up to for ages. Oh, that was a great episode. But we've covered a whole lot of different disorders or issues. We've kind of tried to group them on our website if you're looking for something in particular. Often people start with something that's a little bit close to home and then they end up listening to other episodes of ours. It seems to be the feedback that we get. Yep. So, so and, and I guess really the aim of our show is to... Talk to talk about psychology at a level that psychologists talk about, but make it accessible for people so that they understand. So yeah, and that's us. Exactly. Okay. Uh, if, again, the the tone of this episode has actually been, uh, I think, fairly close to how compassionate and explorative your show comes off. So if you've enjoyed listening to this one, folks, I really do think you'll you'll get a kick out of, uh, and not just a kick out of, but it, you might actually get some help from uh, uh, the Two Shrinks pod. So that is one we definitely recommend. Absolutely. And I would echo what um, Amy said about going to the, the back issues as well, if there's something in there that, that feels particularly personal to you. I am currently working my way through some of the very early episodes of the show that I hadn't listened to yet, and they are all fascinating. <laughs> I wonder what the production quality is like, but yeah, good. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment. No, they're fine. <laughs> they're absolutely fine. Everybody starts out with less good mics than they yeah, get later. Totally. It's the right direction to go in, as opposed to now we've got invest, crap mics. Invest huge, then do three episodes and decide podcasting's not for you after all. No, don't do that. <laughs> So the first episode was ridiculous. We had one microphone between us and we were kind of hunched over it trying to work out how to record. We still have one mic between us. <laughs> Not work. But it's a good mic, you know. So it's, it's a Yeti. So Sharon and I will be back next week talking about Lightyear, the Toy Story spin-off movie, now available to watch on Disney+. Plus. I have concerns. concerns. Until then, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And session over. But best... I can't do De Niro. But best not to... I can't do De Niro. These shoes... You're going to shine these shoes. Um, <laughs> I'm doing the, the, the lip there. I can verify. I'm not used ones. to it. Okay. <laughs> Yo, you're good. Okay. That was brilliant. That was really lovely. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started to hum. 
Hunter and Amy's Two Shrinks pod and School of Movies and the New Century Multiverse are part of Fireside Alliance, a progressive, loose affiliation of podcasts, including The Chipper Made This, Marissa Alexa McCool, Geeks with Shields, Montresor Media, Cinemaspection, Leftover Army Monsters, Recorded Tomorrow, Goblin Law, and Through the Wind Door. Come along and check out all of those shows on firesidealliance.com and join our Discord. Wait till our lips have met Wait till you see that sunshine day You ain't seen nothing yet The best is yet to come And babe, won't it be fine The best is yet to come Come the day you're mine Come the day you're mine I'm gonna teach you to fly We've only tasted the wine We're gonna drain a cup dry Wait till your charms are right For these arms to surround You think you've flown before But you ain't left the ground Till you're locked in my embrace Wait till I draw you near Wait till you see that sunshine place Ain't nothing like it here The best is yet to come And babe, won't it be fine The best is yet to come Come the day you're mine Oh, out of a tree of life, I just picked me a plum.